Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. The art of power. How does wielding power change people? How does power work in the real world anyway? With these two questions, my guest on this episode investigates and explores the journey of impact as well as the motives of some of the world's most renowned changemakers. On her podcast, The Art of Power, she asks powerful people like former US President Barack Obama to reflect on his journey to seek power and how it occasionally came into conflict with his family obligations. She talks to the first black woman to serve in the US Senate, Carol Mosley Brown, about her journey of breaking the glass ceiling. With Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, she seeks to understand what moves someone to want to challenge the entire centuries-old education model and create the largest school in existence. My guest is none other than Arthi Shahani, an award-winning journalist who has worked with NPR as a Silicon Valley correspondent. She's also the best-selling author of the gripping and heart-wrenching memoir, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares, detailing the tragic story of her immigrant father with a ruthless criminal justice system in America. Arthi and I discussed the art of power, not just the podcast that she hosts, but the very essence of power. Is it art? Can it become art? How does one wield it for good, for a life of service, for the betterment of the human experience? But we also discover Arthi, who aside from being a successful journalist, a remarkable interviewer with gripping storytelling abilities, a deeply self-aware and reflective soul who grapples with existential questions that you will probably find familiar. Welcome to another episode of In The Room, the podcast. My name is Veda Sanasi, and I'm your host. Arthi, thank you for joining me. You know, when I saw you in February last year, I was graduation in Mauritius, yeah. and you gave me your book, and yes. that, uh, I was traveling again, and then I got stuck in Kenya. And then I just devoured your book in the first couple of weeks. And it was, it was exactly what I, you know, like going into lockdown was, especially in the early days, it was just such a powerful time for forced reflection. You know, it's like everything was put in perspective. I had so many big plans. And then suddenly all of that is out of the window. And then I remember sitting with your book and I texted you about it, if you recall. Just like it resonated on so many levels. Obviously not as a, you know, the story of immigration is not... Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, the, the cultural um, context, um, you know, reading uh-huh. about you, your, your, your family, and, you know, drawing yeah. parallels between the journeys of women in our culture. I love that. It's like I spent quarantine with you. So thanks for, <laughs> thank, thanks for bringing me with you. Thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> um, I was recently, just a couple hours ago, speaking to a girlfriend of mine, um, who, uh, she, she was noting to me how, 
I basically put a lot of energy into trying to suffocate my rage. And, um, and she's like, I think the rage is going to come out. I think it's going to win. And she told me, she's like, it's ancestral. The dance you're doing is ancestral. And the goddess Kali is going to visit you soon. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that image. Cause I was like, like, wow. I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, this now from reading my memoir that, you know, I feel like as I've, I've tried to evolve and quote unquote mature by figuring out how to transform my just sheer anger at things mm. uh, into something that feels more manageable. Mm. Um, and anyway, her bet is that, you know, I'll come full circle and Kali will come out. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, I, mean, let me- I was going to, I was going to ask you what motivates you to be a storyteller, to write your memoir, to start your podcast. The answer is simple, um, and it's it's literally I'm a storyteller. That's you know that's it's a it's a like a, what a what I mean by that is like no matter what industry you put me into, mm-hmm. right? Like you know this Veda from reading my memoir. I started off in grassroots activism. Mm-hmm. I then went into business journalism. I'm now doing what you can call media entrepreneurship, sort of. Mm-hmm with my hands in, in various uh, piles right now. But everywhere I go, I'm just doing the same thing. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I, I see stories, I hear them. I like to geek out about them. You know, how do you build suspense, mm. right? What is the development of a certain character? Take somebody that you absolutely hate in real life and figure out, is there anything lovable about them? And can you make yourself bring that up for yourself and the reader? You know, it's just, it's, it's for so many reasons. I'm curious to know at what stage in your journey did you sort of have this realization that storytelling is what you want to commit to doing? Yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, what I mean by that is, is, um, in earnest, it was after writing my first book. Mm. I did not realize that I was a writer mm. until I wrote an entire book. Because my book, I didn't go into it thinking, oh, I'm a literary voice and I want to do literary nonfiction about a migrant family from Queens, New York. Like, it, mm. I wasn't doing it with aspirations mm. as such. I was writing out of necessity. So... When I began writing my memoir, Here We Are, I literally felt, and you may or may not remember what a tape recorder is, but I literally felt like a cassette player Mm. and it was stuck. Mm. And it's like, and it was a strange feeling because my life was moving fast. Mm. I pivoted from grassroots activism to a a business reporting at a leading American newsroom within three years. Mm. I made a very fast pivot from one Mm. industry to another. I was in Silicon Valley. I was reporting on companies. You know, everything was moving really, really quickly, but inside I was just stuck. Mm. So that's where the writing came from. It's like, I literally felt like I, I don't know why I don't feel like I'm living my own life. Mm. And so the book was basically a last-ditch effort to stop feeling so stuck. Mm -hmm. And in writing it, I would say actually by the end of it, 
I had a kind of confidence and I don't mean this in an egotistical way. It was just an objective observation of, mm. oh, Arthi, I'll be damned. Mm. You're a writer. Mm. And so, and, and, you know, when you have that realization, because a lot of people have aspirations to like write a story or two, but what I mean by it being a writer is it is literally what I need to do to process the world. Mm. Like, you know, I don't know about you. I'm also a runner. Pre-COVID, mm. I was very much a runner. And it's this thing that you have to do to keep going. Mm. And I think that writing, it's basically how I metabolize more than anything, my spiritual life, mm. you know? Mm. So, mm. so I would say you're using the term storyteller. I'm using the term writer. We mean the same things by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That image of the cassette getting stuck literally resonates because when I was going to school back in the days on the bus, which is like an hour of bus drive, I had a, a Walkman. So having that cassette in there was like a, a feature of my day. And when it gets stuck, it was so frustrating, especially if you get stuck early on and then you you know, you got nothing to listen to for the next hour and just stuck in traffic. But I also yeah. resonate with that idea of, um, you know, sort of, yeah, not, not, not feeling like you have, complete ownership and agency of your narrative and your story. That hit me hard when I was um, 23. I, you know, you know, been in a rat race since I, was, since I was born, you know. And for the first time in my life, I had to pause. I didn't have a choice. I had to pause because there's no school, no homework, no assignment, no nothing. And then I got on a bicycle for three months. It's like biking around. I had to pause and listen, like really listen, you know, like what am I doing? Where am I going? What is, you know, what is the point of all of this, right? Um, Which is anyway, long story short, was a pivot point for me in really sort Mm. of claiming my narrative. And I can trace my journey um, from that point today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I I would put it in a different way, um, what, what you're saying I actually think that, and this is now happening because in addition to the into the, the memoir that I've written and, and you've read, um, I interview a lot of people. Okay, this is my journalistic hat um, on, on my podcast, right? Art of Power. And there I'm interviewing, you know, leaders who have in some way maybe changed the world or done something remarkable or certainly attempted a very heavy lift and have some important lessons. And something I observe over and over with the leaders I interview is some kind of seminal life experience Mm. in the late teens or early 20s that give you a a window into the kind of leader they're going to be. Mm. Like, and, And I mention that because I don't know how it is in Mauritius. I know in the U.S. we have a tendency to infantilize young adults, Mm. like, Ah, oh, they're snowflakes, or ah, oh, they don't do things, or da, 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 da. it's very dismissive stuff. Mm. And over and over, when I'm interviewing, like, I'm including, for example, President Obama. I mean, like I've interviewed a range of people, and over and over, you know what? There was something that happened when they were in their teens or early twenties that told you, mm. listen, you can factor in luck or randomness, but that told you the essence of the great human being that I'm seeing today. And so, you know, what you're describing, not that I know your story in depth, you've got to write your memoir and then send it to me. (laughs) 
But, but, you know, what you're describing in terms of being called back home when you were sort of voyeuristic in certain ways with your ambition, mm. it becomes a really deep insight into, oh, where is your leadership really going to come out? Mm. You know? I want to talk about your podcast in a second, but I, I did want to sort of mm. wrap up on the, on the memoir. What, what, and you said you wrote it out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yes. What has been a surprising outcome from putting that into the world that you were just not anticipating? Um, surprising outcomes. At the risk of being redundant, I'll say owning the fact that I'm a storyteller. I Once I wrote that memoir, I stopped being confused about my purpose. Mm. And I wasn't a baby when I wrote it. I mean, it, it published when I was like about to turn 40, okay? Mm -hmm. And I know that because I have an unconventional career path, I often wondered, Arthi, what are you doing? Because like, I'm very driven. I'm a workaholic, but I couldn't seem to choose a lane to stay in. And once I wrote the book, I was like, oh, I love being a puzzle master, figuring out the arc of how this thing fits together and whatnot. So I would say that owning the role that maybe has been destined for me was a huge gift for writing the book. In terms of audience, I would say that the book has helped me connect to, I mean, just like for you, for example, South Asians from around the world, people that have some, you know, the diaspora, our shared experience of, grappling with a very specific kind of enduring patriarchy, right, which we see in all of our homes. Also having a deep sense of love for family. Like, it's crazy how much we love our families, you know? Mm -hmm. The depth of that love, the power of it. That's I've, I've really just gotten so much from people. I feel like I've become a, a data point in many father-daughter relationships. I hear about this. This is not just in South Asian families, mm -hmm. but I feel like That's come up a lot. I, I sort of see that on my social feed. I've seen that in reviews. It's come up at events. Because, you know, I have a theory, which is that daughters make men become better men. That's because, true. well, you know exactly why then mm. that I'm saying it, right? Because the way you treat your wife may not be the most evolved, the most equal, but mm. the way you treat your daughter, because you want to see her leap, mm. you know, it's in your sort of, it's a kind of Dar Darwinism, right, mm. to it. Um, and then the other little piece I'd say in terms of the reactions that have been very meaningful to me is, um, I'd say, um, young, driven people. Some self-identify as activists or as social entrepreneurs or as change makers, but young people who really identify with the experience of taking on a lot of responsibility early in life for their parents, for their families, um, and finding their voice quite early in life, right? Like my story is fundamentally about a 20-year-old who becomes her family's defense attorney mm -hmm. and runs circles around Homeland Security in the U.S. for a decade, right? I mean, that's fundamentally, it's a coming-of-age story. Mm -hmm. and, and what that does is, like I didn't, and that's actually the surprising one because the others I kind of expected. The one I didn't expect was all of these young people that were like, oh, you know, we identify with her, mm -hmm. right? Because the thing is, Veda, for me, I was working through all the ways I really disliked my younger self. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I actually forgot 
mm. that some people might like things about her. <laughs> I'm hypercritical. So mm. anyway. How, how is your relationship with your younger self? I'm curious to know. Oh, it's gotten much better. Mm. It's gotten, you know, I write very candidly in the book mm. about the ways I believe when at such a young age, I was flung into very big responsibilities for my family. Mm. Um, there's a lot of ego that gets sort of, you know, uh, inflamed in that, you know, like when, when you're like 19, 20, 21, 22, whatever the age, and you've got to like pay the bills and go to jail to visit your loved one and go to court to do this and that part of how you adapt to that much responsibility is you kind of act like, you know, it all. Mm. And I was, I mean, before, before crisis, I was already a know-it-all mm. So you could just imagine sort of how bad it got. Right. Mm. Mm. And so I think that when I was writing the book, I was so focused early on on all the ways I just wish that she had grown up faster and better and had more mm. wisdom. Because it's also my my negative voice inside. This is something I'm coming to learn is, a, is an issue for me. Mm. My negative voice is so much louder mm. than my positive one. Mm. Um, so I think that I still feel like I went at her with a battering ram, mm. but I guess she survived adult Arthie. Mm. because enough readers still really liked her. Mm. And so it's interesting, right? Because I feel like uh, readers helped me to kind of embrace mm. the fullness of, mm. of who I was. Mm. Right. I'm going to ask you a very cliche question, but it is so appropriate mm. right now. If you could go mm. back in time, what would you tell your younger self? Two things. Mm. Two things. Um, one is to find mentors mm. that no matter how completely unique and singular you feel like your specific situation is in life, mm. people have been through it all. Mm -hmm. And she was so busy trying to know it all. She lacks sufficient curiosity for people who've been on that journey. And I truly believe when you know that you're looking for something, you do find it. Mm -hmm. You don't, When you don't know you're looking, that's where luck really becomes involved. And so she didn't know to really look. And so she did not, a lot of good adults, mm -hmm. but not people who really helped her to evolve. And I say that in the sense of the way that I burned out when I was younger mm -hmm. was highly avoidable. Mm -hmm. had I had the right kind of mentorship. And then the second thing I would tell her is her spiritual development. Because mm -hmm. I don't care. And I'm not, this is not a religious thing. Mm -mm. I'm not telling you anything about God. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that. Mm -hmm. But we had, whatever word you want to use, a spirit, mm -hmm. a soul, a third eye, an inner being, whatever it is, a depth of wisdom that our ancestors have given us. And the modern world will beat it out of you. Mm -hmm. We work so fast. We're so competitive. So many forces kill our spirit. Mm -hmm. And if you don't cultivate a real practice, whatever it is, whatever makes mm -hmm. sense for you, if you don't nurture it the way that you might, for example, take care of your physical body, it will weaken and that will hurt you. Mm -hmm. And that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And how does one in this world that you just described frenetic, fast-paced, constantly moving, unpredictable, volatile. How does one nurture the spirit? Well, well, how do you do it? 
for me, it's always been about communities. And you know, to your point, I was reflecting. My my parents came over to visit me the other day, and after a long time, we like hung out together and had some real conversations. And I was telling my dad how, while I was sort of complaining a little bit, how I felt he was too harsh on me when I was a teenager to the point that I didn't see him as a friend. Um, mm. To which he had a cute answer. He's like, well, I'd rather be your friend now that, that, and be the dad that I was then. And I was like, okay, well, good to say that. <laughs> but anyway, the point is um, I was sharing with him how I was very lucky to your point about mentorship. Um, I was very lucky that I had, I, was men- I talk about the bus, right? I was telling him about my neighbor who would travel to Port Louis, the city with me in the morning uh, for an hour, right? And this is a man I had massive respect for. And, you know, for about six years, he sat next to me on the bus and was just like a great friend and mentor, but like an adult friend and mentor, you know, who would be able to sort of, yeah, tell me. And he used to work at the parliament. So he would tell me about all the all the stuff that happens with, you know, a lot of men with big egos and stuff. You know, So I was very lucky from a young age to actually be surrounded by, um, uh, you know, people who took me under their wings and, and, and gave me yeah. mentorship. Why I say this is because then it led me to really build an affinity for communities, right? And I've, I realized that I was been, I've, been lucky. I've been lucky to find myself in community. And I don't know if it's I'm just lucky or like, as you said, sometimes you want something, you like find it, right? I was seeking communities. Uh, but I, you know, when I look back, I've always been in really powerful, strong, caring deeply compassionate communities mm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and and for me those these are my spiritual moments my this is a spiritual moment for me right when you are able to elevate yourself from your day-to-day right i mean once i'm done talking to you i'm gonna get on nine hours of zoom calls right and that's yeah. not you know that's the norm but this is not the norm this is spiritual mm-hmm. because we are able to connect at a deeper elevated level i feel my you know, consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I feel that too, Vela, what you're saying. And then the only thing, and I, I appreciate, I, I think I share with you what you've described about how you awaken that part of yourself, mm-hmm. that human connection you're describing. And then the only thing I would add that I think is vital is quiet. Mm-hmm. Like a deep solitude. Mm-hmm. Because I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. I'm not speaking about, oh, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I don't care about that stuff. Without the quiet, we humans can't hear what's inside. You know where I made my commitment to write my book? And I'm not, I, I, it's interesting. I haven't really talked about this publicly, but it feels relevant to you, to what we're discussing. I was actually at a meditation retreat. I was doing my first silent retreat, five days. And so, yes, exactly. And, and I, you know, I'm not bringing it up to um, to now talk about the Pasana experience. It's not for that, but it's to say that I went into that retreat. It was a few months after Donald Trump had been elected in the United States. Um, that was a moment. Listen, a lot of people went through stuff <laughs> after he won in newsrooms. You know, I'm part of newsrooms. In newsrooms, there was a lot of uh, questioning of what's our role, what do we do, you know, how do we use our megaphone, do we just shout back at him, which is a lot of what ended up happening, unfortunately. Um, And when I went into my silent retreat, I didn't go in thinking, oh, I'm now going to write a memoir about my migrant family. 
But there in the quiet, it just became so clear that, oh, this is what's in, this is the unique thing inside of me, right? And people do this thing when they're looking for the North Star all the time. You're looking for your North Star and you go to everyone you know around you or like the smartest people you know or the people you admire. And you're like, what should I do with my life? And it's like, no, no one is going to answer, no one's going to tell you what your North Star is. You got to figure that out. So then do you know how? Um, I made a commitment to the team to talk about your podcast. So we'll yeah. shift gears a little bit and talk about yeah. the art of power. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know. I want to call it the art of powder. But I do want to ask you, why art? Because I think about art as something, you know, beautiful, creative, imaginative, and power the moment I hear the word power, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, bring some positive, <laughs> it doesn't tap into the positive brain, as you mentioned earlier, you know, like, mm. uh, so yeah, curious to know. Um, I'll, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, and actually maybe just for the reason you've just said is that each word seems to carry like a different energy to it. And, and in some ways the podcast is an outgrowth from my book And the way that I mean it specifically is I wanted to create a beat for myself. I wanted to create a steady stream of interviews I would do of people who have managed to pull off change. That is incredibly hard to do. Okay. It's not easy. And a lot of people have passion, but they don't have skill. Okay. Some people have skill, but they don't have passion, right? It's either, or you see this in many cases, And so with Art of Power, I mean, I was really wanting people to react to the word power because my thesis is that everybody wants it. We just have different amounts of willingness to say that we want it. And those of us who are more self-aware also have negative connotations with it, like you, right? Um, but what I'm coming to find is that so much of what people share, it, it's really, it's living life as an art form, right? It's like, it's really, how do you, What is creativity? I mean, creativity, it's to create. It is creation. Mm -hmm. So how do you basically manage whether you're in politics or in business, in software or entertainment, whatever, it doesn't matter where you are, the human experience of making something from nothing. Mm -hmm. It's artistic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's why. Mm -hmm. And... Um You've done, what, 13 episodes so far? Would you say, looking back on all these interviews, that you have a newfound appreciation for sort of this art of, of wielding power? Because this is one of the questions that you, you, you're trying to investigate, yeah? Yeah, I would say one of the first things that, or one of the strongest lessons thus far. And it's still pretty early on. I mean, this season is 30 episodes, so we're not even at the halfway mark yet. Um, but some of my early lessons, I would say, I've come to appreciate that every single person I interview has stamina. And that is something that, you know, like, like I interviewed a man, <clears throat> a man, Jeffrey Canada, who spent about 25 years 
taking his crazy idea around education and turning it into a mainstream idea. Mm. 25 years, mm. right? Uh, my first episode was with a young woman who physically walked from Miami to Washington, D.C., mm. 1,500 miles. I don't know how many kilometers that is, but it's more. She walked to basically force the Obama administration to create a huge change that basically helped a million undocumented students in America. I mean, we're talking about people who, you know, everyone's a marathon runner, every single person. And I just think that, you know, because I don't just do the show for an audience. I'm also learning as I go along, right? We're all in the process learning together, right? All of us. This is this is why you interview. This is why I interview because there's a journey you are on and you need people to help you through it, right? So I think that something I've been very humbled by is like, damn, there's just, there's no cutting corners. You just yeah. got to have the energy. Yeah. 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 Um, and then I'm sorry, the, the one other thing I will say is that the spirit of service, you know, I, I didn't go into Art of Power with clear parameters about the kind of power I'm interested in and power comes in many flavors, right? But I find myself looking at people who have a spirit of service and I want to understand how do you, how? Because it's hard. It's actually hard to live with that spirit. Yeah. And you said the, the, the second question that you are investigating is this idea of how does power work in the real world? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how does power work in the real world? What are you, what are you, what is, what is the thread that's emerging? <laughs> I, I have actually, I've listened to a few episodes, but I'm curious to know, because it's interesting, right? When, when you, when you investigate such a question and, and you get to, to talk to the range of people that you've, you've talked to and some real powerhouses on, on, on your list, um, mm -hmm. some themes surely emerge, right? In terms of um, some threads, in terms of Absolutely. how this thing works. So I'm just curious to know from Absolutely. your perspective, um, because, you know, there's, there's a preparation, and you know this, right? There's a preparation that you do going into the conversation that does not necessarily emerge in the end product, which is the 45 to 60 minutes that we get to listen to, right? So I'm Oh, yeah, no, my interview. Yeah. I'm so grateful that you can do an episode in an hour interview. I mean, my interviews easily go two, two and a half hours long. And I'm kind of like, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll start sharing some of my favorite power lessons. Um, I already mentioned to you the young woman who walked for 1500 miles. You know, historically, we've heard of long walks right, in civil disobedience, Gandhi had the salt march. It's a very famous historical example. And I didn't quite understand what is the power of that. Like, why is it such a constant historical reference? Mm. And she explained that when you do a long walk and you put your physical body on a runway where other people can come and they can witness your intention, right? Walking a mile is very different from tweeting, People witness your intention. They witness your body on the line. And then from your action, it becomes a call and response. So part of, I mean, she and her friends who started off on this march that has changed American history, they started with nothing. I mean, literally they had the wrong shoes, but the way they built power, right? Because they're the definition of powerless, undocumented, poor, et cetera. 
They built power by creating a runway where others could witness their intention and merge. Okay. I didn't think about it that way before. That was quite a lesson to me in, in how power worked, I, I would say. Mm. We have an episode coming up this week, um, uh, a big deal in in the esports and cryptocurrency world, okay? Mm. And so I'm giving you a little preview for something we're going to talk about. The, the man who we're, who, we're, uh, who we're having on, this man named Kevin Chow, he talked about when he was building his first company, he was building a gaming company. He went to Facebook and he told Facebook, hey, you guys just started charging 30% off my app. We can't afford to pay that. It's going to kill our business. And he laid out his entire business, all the numbers. And he thought kind of naively, if I go there and I'm just honest about everything, mm. they're going to do the right thing and they're not going to crush the business. And what he came to learn in that meeting was they didn't care. Mm. They were already Goliath. He was David. And what he learned there is when you have an entity or a person who clearly has more power than you and they just don't give a damn, they're not mm. going to hear you, go run circles around them. You can't push through them, run around them. And when you run around them, you will find open doors. And I think that that's sort of interesting reminder because so often I think the people who are interested in hearing a show like Art of Power are people who want to have more of it, right? And so how do you then become strategic about not fighting fights you're not going to win, looking for the open spaces, whatnot. So those are a couple. Do you want me to keep going? I'm happy to... By to, all means, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I'm like, I'm giving you the cliff notes to my show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about President Obama. President Obama, when I interviewed him, I was like, what's something you've learned about how power works that you didn't know when you were younger, right? You were precocious when you were younger. You read a lot. You know, he's always sort of had that quality. What'd you learn that you didn't know? And he was like, well, you know, as a young organizer, I learned there are two kinds of power, power of people and power of money. And he's like, actually, there's a third, power of story. Stories are what organize people and stories are what organize money. So you have to understand that the narrative, the way you connect dots to create meaning for others is incredibly powerful. And it actually has something to do with why he's now got a company, Higher Ground Productions, right? Mm. And he's now churning out narratives. It's the great lesson of his life that mm. stories underlie this, right? Mm. Yeah. I'm also curious to know... Um, in those interviews, do you do you see a noticeable difference between the way um, your male um, guests think about power, or even how they wield power, in different from 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 some of your female guests? No, I see a marked difference thus far. And listen, I have a sample size you've noted of thirteen, which is not statistically significant. Mm. Uh, I've also been a, a journalist for a decade, and I've interviewed, you know thousands of people. Mm -hmm. I see a marked difference with, uh, frankly, how quickly men feel threatened. Hmm. So I find my female guests are more able to be questioned without feeling 
offended or, you know, you can, you know, when you're talking to somebody, when you feel the invisible guard go up, mm-hmm. you know, when someone goes from like, chillax, yeah, we're on the same page to, wait, what'd you say? You, <laughs> you know, that, that shift, that energetic shift, you feel it. I mean, if you're human, you feel it. And it's interesting to me. I note this. I was actually just talking to my producers about this the other day. It happens more quickly with men than with women. Mm-hmm. The feeling of threatened by being questioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that it, it's not a judgment. It's an observation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've noticed. But in terms of the ways of exercising power, I mean, thus far in our power, we haven't actually had, I want to have as the season unfolds. I mean, again, we're only a third of the way in, but I want to have athletes <clears throat> as well as at least a warrior or two. So I think that there, whether it's a woman or a man or, or both or trans or whatnot, um, I'd like to explore the physical dimension of power more. I, you know, honestly, I, I don't know if you remember this. When you and I met in Mauritius and you were interviewing me, um, there, was, <laughs> there was a point when you'd mentioned to me exactly what you just said here, that, you know, you, oh. you, you, you mentioned the experience over the years of, um, you know, um, sort of being able to notice when uh, when an in, when you're interview when a guest sort of puts that put their guards on you know and i and i remember in the moment wondering i was like wait did i just do that <laughs> like did, did i just put my guard on right now is that is, you know but it was it's it was it was uh, it was actually a powerful that's why i still remember it um it was a powerful moment because i think um I experience that a lot, right? Because, you know, you're not always doing interviews or you're always being interviewed, but you're always in, at least in my work, you're always in meetings. You're always, you know, yeah. talking to people and either you asking questions or questions are being asked of you. And, and to have the awareness sometimes that, you know, you are about to put your guard on because the question is uncomfortable or because, yeah. you know, sometimes you don't, yeah, you don't know. Like, is it, is it a, you know, an ego trip? Is there something that somebody's like, press a button, you know, and, and that's yeah. what sort of sends you down that, that, that path. It's hard to know. Yeah. It's hard to know how hard to push and where, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you Veda, that, it, it, listen, you could, you could talk to my mom and she'd tell you, I've been pushing buttons and asking things that I shouldn't <laughs> since I was born, you know, like it's a sort of, it's a karmic thing too. But I would say that particularly as I've evolved as an interviewer, I really do think about my own intention why am I asking this uncomfortable thing to somebody? Am I being gratuitous? Am I looking to corner you? Or do I have a genuine curiosity? Is it like, no, I'm really just asking you something that's so devastatingly obvious. I need you to bother to answer it. And so, you know, I feel like that clarity of purpose, it really does help. And it helps me to know where it's okay to push versus where to let go. I remember in your interview with President Obama, you'd ask him, you'd ask him about um, his decision not to inform Michelle about uh, running, and he answered, and then you keep pushing. But what was beautiful, I think you pushed twice. But like you know, you know, you you you, you, you had specific things that you were asking. But but I felt by the time, sort of, you had you were done with that thread of questioning, the answer that he didn't. I mean. Credit to him, I suppose, for it, you know, sort of not not putting the guard on, or you know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and actually digging deeper, right? And actually, you you mm-hmm. you help him dig deeper to really sort of mm-hmm. unearth, uh, you know, a couple of other insights that we would not have gotten um, had he remained at sort of the the surface level 
um, answer which he had already practiced probably in <laughs> in other interviews. So I thought that was a when I when I when I listened to that piece, I I just smiled because I was like. Um, this is this is Artia, Artia at her best, you know. So she's like, oh, she does with President Obama what she did with me in Mauritius. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, not, not even remotely <laughs> comparable, but you know, sort sort of, sort of. No, yeah. to his credit, and this is to me like a really beautiful thing. What a self-aware person! Mm. What an extraordinarily self-aware person! You know, it's I really I love it, and I'll tell you, like you know, in talking with him. Of course, you know, I'm not going to front, like my heart's racing. I'm like, all right, this is, I'm going to remember this on my deathbed kind of thing. You know, like you, you know, when you're having a moment like that and for somebody to actually be hungry to be challenged, he spoke to me double the time he was supposed to because he's actually hungry for it. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's a very special thing. Totally, totally. You, you talk about self-awareness, and I think self-awareness sort of goes hand in hand with, with ego, an ego that is mm-hmm. not self-aware is probably dangerous to the world, right? Because oh, the ego is there for all of us. As you've gone through this exploration of power, is, is the theme of ego emerging it's really interesting, you know, and I don't want to, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm going to re- reference Barack Obama again and actually do it alongside another guest of mine, Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy. Mm-hmm. But these two men have diametrically opposite relationships to the word ego. Mm-hmm. President Obama has referred to himself as a megalomaniac. He's like, that's what it is. That's when you yeah. seek to do the kinds of things I've done. There's some megalomania in there, okay? Mm. But what tempers that, he says, is the megalomania is an entry point to service. And, you know, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King had a very famous sermon about this called the drum major instinct. Like, you know, you want to be out front. There's there's this primordial human desire. It's actually stronger than the desire for sex, if you can imagine. Mm. It is the desire to be recognized, Mm. okay? Mm. We all have it. And Dr. King and then later Obama talk about this need to be recognized can actually just open a pathway to instead of being recognized for your Tesla, you want to be recognized for your service, right? Now, let's go over to Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy. You know, I was puzzling over, he's another one I badgered, (laughs) but I was puzzling over why he had the confidence to quit his job in a hedge fund to do to make YouTube videos. And it's not just that, by the way. Like, it's not just that. It's that his vision for what he's doing is to actually transform the entire modern education system, which is based on uh, a model that was created in Prussia. He wants to dismantle the, like, he doesn't want classrooms separated by ages or even by subjects. In Sal Khan's classroom, there should be students, you know, ages six to 12 learning together and teaching each other. Like, he has a, he is mm-hmm. out there in what he wants to see. And I'm like, where do you have the confidence to dream like that? Like, where does it come from? And he ultimately said, once he stopped making it about himself, when he could 
put away the ego and he could just ask himself, what's the right thing to do? You only live this one life. So should I keep working in my stable job or should I try this thing that is showing some promise? He was basically like when the ego fizzled away, I just became a vehicle for purpose. And so it's interesting, right? They're kind of different takes on this. What's your take on it? You've talked about ego twice it's before I brought Khan. this up. It's more Salkhan. It's more Salkhan. And I've actually thought about it. I've, I've wondered if it has to do with more Eastern spirituality. Hmm. I, I don't know if it's a difference between a Judeo-Christian mindset and an Eastern mindset. Hmm. But to me, this sort of this, this transcendent quality he's talking about of shedding the self to join some sort of collective force, that really speaks to me. Hmm. Hmm. And is that something that you've sort of, throughout your life journey, is something that you've, you've tapped into or is this something more recent? Like at what point did you realize that there's an ego and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work on it? I mean, I guess since my parents told me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You really gotta work on that ego. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and how did you respond back then? They were like, oh, yeah, you guys oh, are right. Whatever, roll lies, roll lies, <laughs> put on headphones, walk away, <laughs> whatever. Take my cassette player. Uh-huh. No, I mean, you know, I'll actually give it even more recently, like, you know, I wonder why do I feel the need to be heard so much? Like, why do I chase work? I wonder, I'm like, am I attention seeking? Is that, is that what's going on? And it's, maybe it's a part of that, but I've actually, the part that I'm interested in, in my drive to tell stories, to interview, to sort of be in the public purview in some way, the part of it I'm interested in is the part that has a unique contribution. Right. So it's like, I've really reflected on like, what is it that I'm trying to do at scale? And Mm -hmm. it it may sound quite simplistic, but Veda, the honest conversation, how often do we have an honest conversation? I mean, come on, (laughs) for real. Mm -hmm. And I seem to crave it so pathologically, it might actually be a gift. And so that conversation with Sal Khan, I actually thanked him at the end of it. I told him, I was like, thanks, I really needed that. Mm. Because I, I want to sort of make sure I'm not chasing things just for like the likes, mm. you know? Because mm. I'll be sad if I live my life that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, in the last uh, episode on this podcast, I talked to David Bradford. He's a professor at Stanford, teaches this course called Touchy Feely, which is like this super... Oh, super popular. Super yeah, popular. Yeah, super popular. And, and, and so you were talking about his book called Exceptional um, Relations, How to Build Exceptional Relationships, etc. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and as we were talking about it, I was asking him, um, you know, he was talking about vulnerability, right? That vulnerability is important to be able to have exceptional relationships. And then he was trying to pull an arthy and dig deeper. I was like, so what does it mean to be vulnerable? You know, how, how do you go have these, <laughs> these conversations? And then he was talking about, he's like, you know, I can share a lot of personal stuff with you, um, but it can still be, be pretty rehearsed, you know? Like, it's still a layer of vulnerability, but it's very rehearsed. Like, I've actually said this to a bunch of people. So at this point, it's not really, you know, at, at the real 
deep level of vulnerability or honesty. And then he talks about sort of to get to that level, you, you have to be ready or willing or comfortable in the moment to go to these deeper layers that, you know, of are course. Yes, right? Yeah. 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 Well, it's also, I mean, this is where I would actually say, and I'm not sure what he would think about this. The interviewer can play a role by building trust and respect. So, you know, we say dig deeper, dig deeper, you know, let's put some numbers to it. Let's say someone has managed to get, you know, three meters underground, but they've got, you know, a good 12 to go. Well, how do I help them to be, dig deeper? The three meters, it might be satisfying to the average ear, but I can hear when someone is thinking something mm. that's fresh. I can hear mm. when someone, you know, like you, you know, in my interviews, I can hear when people have to reflect before they give me their answer. I can hear it. And part of how I, I prepare for it is, you know, in my interviews, I easily put, you know, three, four days worth of time into really preparing to understand what about this person do I want to interrogate? I even ask people to connect me to their loved ones. There's no shortage of like partners and children and co-founders I've spoken with because I want to, when I'm going to talk to someone, I want to know them as well as their mom already knows them so that then we can have a conversation that's a bit more textured. And when you put in that effort, people really respond to it because they're like, because you know what's, you know, you want a power lesson? People crave being seen. And seen, I mean understood. So if you know how to make someone feel understood, they will open up to you. And that is power. Mm-hmm. And that's indeed how I got to know you because you were interviewing that's, me about somebody else. And uh, That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. That's the process. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Arthi, I have one last question for you. Yes. Does me. Arthi Shahani wield power? Yeah, she does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's formal and informal. Mm. I would say that, you know, my father is somebody who came to America. Um, both of my parents, not just my father, but he's the one who went through a legal ordeal that none of us did besides him. But my parents were refugees. They were, they were born into, into colonial India, uprooted during the partition, pretty much stateless their entire lives. They showed up in America. Um, like migrants all over the world, essentially um, anonymous irrelevant, um, erased in certain ways. And I think about how in just one generation, I mean, I wasn't born here. They brought me here when I was a child, but in in a handful, you know, a couple of decades, that the ways that my parents were treated, the ways that they were stripped of their dignity, they were absolutely stripped of their dignity. My father was put in prison. That kind of thing, I won't have to go through because, not because I'm a better person. It's got nothing to do with morality. It's because, frankly, 
being in one place for as long as I've been, unlike my parents got to be, I've built connections. I have this thing called network. And we talk about network, networking, and it, sometimes it's kind of a lame word, a dirty word. But I think of it as, wow, I will probably never be hungry and on the verge of homelessness like my parents were because of the relationships I've had the opportunity to build. You know, I stand on their shoulders and then I amass these things that they couldn't. So that kind of thing, I'm telling you something very simple. I'm telling you, I have, I'm so confident that I'm not going to end up destitute. But that's not a small thing. I mean, the majority of humans can't say that, Mm. right? The majority can't, the minority can. So I have that. It's a privilege, right? I have that privilege. Mm. And then the other thing, the way that I feel that this is where I feel God has really blessed me specifically is I have a voice that I cannot for the life of me stop using and I am figuring out how to wield it, right? Mm. Not everyone works through their voice, but I clearly do. And yeah, I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful enough that, Basically, name a person, any person, and say, Arthi, I want you to seek that person out and have a conversation with them. And if I feel motivated to, it'll happen. And not that you've asked, but I think your voice is extremely powerful. You are one Mm. of the best storytellers I have listened to, read uh, from. And uh, it is always such a pleasure and honor to talk to you. Thank you very much, Arthi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Following the last episode with David Bradford, I received a note from a listener about the interview, and she said, it sounded like a family conversation. It was very authentic, and it is crazy how quickly that can happen with people open to it. First of all, thank you to this particular listener for the feedback. Please keep it coming. Second of all, I couldn't agree more. I do also believe there is something truly special and soothing in meeting a kindred spirit who is open to transcend beyond the norm and elevate a conversation to a higher level or to dig deeper, as Arthi and I were just discussing. And I must confess that this has been a somewhat surprising but a very much welcome outcome from these interviews since we began the podcast. While the podcast still aims to showcase high-impact leaders and entrepreneurs and their work from around the world, I hope that, like me, You listeners are also appreciating getting to see these people outside of their story of impact or influence. So thank you once again to Arthi Shahani, a kindred spirit and a true master at having authentic conversations. Don't forget to check out her memoir, Here We Are, American Dreams, American Nightmares, available on Amazon. And tune in to listen to The Art of Power, either on NPR or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Join us next time in The Room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.